Good morning, Revive. Um, if you're visiting with us, I'm Dave Jenkins. I'm the teaching pastor at Revive Christian Church. And you probably were expecting to see me face to face. And right now, my son, Ethan, my daughter, Sophia, her husband, Matt, my wife, Jana, my son, Timothy, and our two golden doodles, Bailey and Lemma, are getting to see me face to face. Um, what has happened in my life is that over the past weekend, I was spending some time with a group of people who later discovered that they had spent some time with an individual who was COVID-19 or coronavirus positive. And I realized, oh, I've been with people who have been exposed, so there's a possibility I might have been exposed. So our family, Tuesday of this last week, we went and got tested. Um, we have all come back negative, but when we looked in the CDC recommendations, the recommendations basically say that there is a 2- to 14-day incubation period. So I'm basically trying not to interact with much of anybody for 14 days. Um, working the math, I'm going to go get tested again Tuesday. If it's negative by next Sunday and I haven't caught something else, you should see me. But I wanted to uh, clearly make a presentation to you today. And what we're doing with Revive, and I think those that are with us know this, but just again, if you're visiting with us, um, as we've entered into this COVID season, it's changed a little bit. We've got to think through what we're doing. And we have tried very hard to follow the North Dakota Health Department uh, recommendations. And you'll notice, yeah, we see it with a little bit of distance. Some of us are wearing masks. We're trying to keep things clean. Uh, one of the things that we typically would be doing is we would dismiss for children and have them go, but our leadership thought a little bit about this and thought, you know, we would like to follow the leadership of the North Dakota school systems and teachers, so we're basically just keeping everybody together. Um, we wanted to watch how things go until the fall before we start putting children in different places. And in some ways, let me say this, this has been fun for me. Because uh, those that might be visiting, everyone else would know this. God gave me five great kids. And the best thing he's given me is my granddaughter, who's been with me for a couple of weeks. And I enjoy the environment of having a multiple of generations with me, particularly little kids. So I've been trying to teach in such a way that would help and be workable with little kids. Um, saying that... We just finished Galatians, and then we did James, and we're going to go in and start a new series that our leadership is calling The Abiding Life. And basically what we're going to be doing between now and into October is we are looking at stories in the Old and New Testament in which God has been moving in his people's life, but that movement basically meant that they had to stop and pause and wait and they were entering into a season that was going to have a lot of mystery, uncertainty, and they might be in that season for weeks, they might be in there for months, they might be in there for years. And we thought, you know, this is, might be kind of where we're at right now with this season that we're in. We're calling it The Biting Life. I'm starting the series today, and I'm going to be talking about the story of Noah, and before I do that, also, if you're visiting with us, we've had a habit. This is how I taught my kids. I basically told them stories and then gave them facts and kept quizzing them on it. So we're going to have two scriptures that we're going to be trying to memorize as a church. 
I'm going to read them for you. The first one's going to be in Isaiah 25, verse 4, which is talking about who God is. At the end of my sermon, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 2, talk about how do we respond to all these witnesses of faith. And next week, God willing, if I'm in front of you, we're going to have these scriptures up on the overhead, and they're going to basically be, I'm going to pull out a few words, and you're going to have to, hopefully you've memorized it, and you can tell me which words are there. Uh, eventually, I'm just going to take a few words off, and a few words off, and a few words off, and I hope by October we can basically say all these together. But this is our first one. I want us to remember who is God. And if we're going through one of these seasons where we have to abide, where we have to sit in mystery and patiently wait, we need to focus really on the very nature of God. Isaiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, said these words. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms and a shade from the heat. That is who God is, a stronghold for the poor, a stronghold for the needy, a, a refuge for in distress from storms and shade from the heat. And I have appreciated shade from the heat in North Dakota this last week, and in a few months I'm going to appreciate a refuge from a storm. Now as we get into Noah, I want to raise an issue that is going to be a little bit different than what some of you are dealing with as parents. Um, we at Revive are a church that's largely made up of young families, young kids. Uh, I think our kids range in age from about 10 months to most of them about 8, 8 to 10. That's the bulk of our kids. We've got a few that are teens. But you're going to get a sheet of paper that's got some notes. I'm going to say here's some things to memorize. Here's some things I'll quiz you on next week. But we do have some people in our church who are teenagers and something that will happen at some point for every family in our church is you're going to be sitting around the dinner table talking about these old stories that I'm going to call the prehistoric stories of the Bible. They basically come from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, in which they're the one portion in the Bible where you cannot go back and find these historical documents to match up with it. It's, some would say it's just myth. I don't agree with that. And your kids are going to have an experience, like you might with your kids, read through this story, and then maybe this week you'd go to the North Dakota State Museum, and you're walking around and you see, oh, here's some exhibits about North Dakota one time being covered by an ocean, and the little child's mind will go, yeah, that's what I read about in church, because that's when the flood covered the whole earth. And then your kid, particularly the one who's really smart, will someday sit down with a calculator and you go, I'm going to figure out just how old the earth is. And they start crunching numbers in the Old Testament, and they realize, you know what? The earth is only is 4,000 years old. That's what all the numbers say. And then... They kind of get into junior high and maybe into high school and college, and they go back to the State Museum, and they realize, uh, but the State Museum is telling me that the Earth is millions of years old, not 4,000. And they'll start playing around with science, and they'll start looking at carbon dating, and they'll go, you know what, I think there might be more evidence for a Earth being millions of years old than 4,000, and a crisis of faith comes. And sometimes it comes while you're sitting at the dinner table. Well, 
I'm going to give you three options for how to handle this. Here's things that are going to come. You will have sitting around your dinner table somebody who reads through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and says, it's still all literal. There was only 24-hour, seven 24-hour days in which God created it. The 4,000 years, that's what happened, and somehow God made it look like it's older than it is. Then you're going to have someone who says, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you believe that. And one of those persons might say something like, you know, it's probably just all a myth, and all we have there is a parable about what God is doing. And then there may be somebody at your dinner table who will kind of stand in the middle and say, hmm, how can I represent what I think is true and represent that for science and Bible and then help everybody get along? And they'll probably come up with this idea where they'll say, well, you know, the Bible was written in a specific date in a specific time with specific cultures and heritage is in languages in which they had a common understanding of science which wasn't ours today. And it was true to those people, but the science may not be quite accurate of it. They'll say, hey, the, the people existed, the events happened, but the Bible isn't a scientific textbook. The point is to lead us to faith in an unseen God instead of idols. Well, I'm going to encourage you, when you have those complicated conversations that are tough to have at home, to be willing to keep having the conversation. Don't kick anyone out of the table. Let the conversations keep happening. Now, here's a couple of key things and to remember. Just as you're having it, you're trying to figure out what's true. Almost all regions of the world's geography are shaped by water and ice. About any place you go, any place I've ever been, you can see, well, you can, life has been moved around by water and ice. You can't deny that floods have been a part of shaping our world. Almost all cultures in the world, if you go back to their ancient stories, almost all of them have a story of a catastrophic flood. So there's something in human and the Earth's history that says we've got to deal with these flood issues. There's something back there. Then I want you to remember this is the point of Genesis, and I would encourage you, when you're reading an older New Testament book, try to look at what it says at the very beginning, look at what it says at the end, and though I believe they're inspired by God, they're ultimately true, they're also good pieces of history and literature, those books will say what is their purpose, and that's what you should be the most loyal about. The point of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you're sitting at the dinner table and you found that your whole family is in a lot of different places, dad and mom hang on to that one. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's the facts of the flood. This is the basic story of it, and it's roughly three chapters long, and I don't want to eat up a lot of time. So I'm going to give you a summary and trust that you guys can go home and read it if you got more questions. As God created the earth, he saw that it was good, and everything that he had made was good. But yet sin had entered into the world, and God had created people, and they were marrying, and they were having children, and they were increasing and increasing in number. And as the human population was increasing, they were becoming increasingly evil. Some translations will say corrupt, 
and they're described as every thought in their mind being wicked, and the way that they treated one another was violent over and over and over again. As God looked upon the earth, some translations say he repented. What I think it meant is he looked and he felt this incredible grief that what he had created had turned out so different than what he had intended. And in these moments of grief, he also feels this sense of wrath and judgment, and he makes a decision, I'm going to wipe it all out and start over, but he looks down, and there's one man named Noah, who God's word describes as righteous and good, and God decides, I'm going to start and rebuild through Noah. He tells Noah to go and build an ark, which some of you might know is a religious word. You only hear it in the Bible most of the time. It means basically a really big boat that looks like a barge. And he tells him to build it really long and really high and really deep, and I've forgotten the numbers. Cover it with tar pitch, three floors in height. And whenever I've seen these, even like a, a child story or a movie, it's like the story goes on of, can you imagine the whole earth is wicked, God speaks to you, and you and your sons go and start building this huge boat, and you're told a rain is coming, and everybody around you is wicked, and they're watching you build something that looks foolish. After they have that built, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, and Noah's wife, are told to go and gather the animals of the earth to bring in from the unclean animals to a male and female from each, each type of animal and from the clean animals, which would be mostly livestock, to bring in 14 or 7 pairs of, of male and female. They do that, and then they sit in the ark for 7 days. I mean, I'm just thinking about that. You're in a cold, dark ark sealed up for seven days with all of these animals. I couldn't make it seven days. Then it starts to rain, and there's 40 days of rain. And during that 40 days of rain, and the springs underneath the earth burst, so you've got both water coming from up from springs and coming down from the heavens as rain, and it says it floods the earth, and all living beings on it are killed. For 150 days after that 40 days, the earth just kind of rests. And I'm imagining the ark rocks on the sea, and then it settles onto a mountain. It says the Mount Ararat. Some people think that's in Turkey. And 40 days later, the mountains become visible. Noah sends out a raven and a dove. Twice he releases a dove, and it comes back seven days later, or it comes back in a series of seven days. Then he removes the top of the ark, and he sits there watching the skies for a month, and then two, two months in, God commands him to go out. He roughly spends an entire year in this ark waiting. A full year. As he comes out, the world has changed. Noah takes some of the animals and he makes a sacrifice and he sees a rainbow and God promises him, I'm never going to flood the earth again. He promises that the seasons are going to be stable and life starts differently, where man before had just been eating vegetables. Now we can eat meat. What do we learn from this? I had a couple of things I learned. First, humanity is by nature sinful. Our lives can be a witness to what to God's goodness. You know, like Noah's seen as a righteous man, but if you read the whole story of Noah, 
He's not the hero of the story, and we should never buy into any religious system or story where any human being gets to be the hero of the story. Second, God's nature is both just and merciful. God can look at this wicked earth and his justice cries out and his wrath cries out and he's going to destroy it all and then his, he's moved by mercy and he tries to think, how can I redeem this? That's our nature of our God. He will create ways to protect the faithful. Third, we learn some things about the nature of God. And Genesis describes that we humans are made in God's image. So as we understand who God is, he's so different than we are, but yet we're called to be like him. And here's a couple of things that are the nature of God. And one, he feels sad. He feels our emotions. He watches and he remembers. And he calls us to be like that, to have a range of emotion that's watching others and remembering Another thing I've noticed out of this, fourth, is faith sometimes involves long seasons of mystery and obedience. Don't forget that one, and that's going to be a common theme we're going to have for the next couple of months. Faith has long seasons of mystery and obedience, and sometimes we just have to step forward thinking, this is the best I can understand it, and I'm going to obey God in these circumstances. Fifth, God makes promises. The, the rainbow is one. Some translations will say agreements or covenants or pacts. I remember as a child hearing about the rainbow as a promise and saying it. I don't think that's a good word. He promises stable seasons and to never destroy the earth again with a worldwide flood. Six, humanity, who we are. We are created to steward creation. You see this when it gets all said and done. The Lord says that we are to rule over creation and that's a godlike thing, but we're also supposed to steward it, to care for it, to nurture it. Uh, my granddaughter has been with me for a couple of weeks, and one of the fun things to me has been watching her play with the dogs in her home. And as soon as she meets the dogs in my home each morning, she says, Hi. She usually expresses she loves them. She tries to give them a hug. And then she starts commanding them what to do. Come, sit, no. Fetch, she's got the commands down. She's two years old, and I joke, I said, well done, Penny. You're expressing your humanity. You're created to rule over the earth, rule over my dogs. And that's what we're supposed to do. Life changes, I mentioned this, humanity now can eat meat, but it's interesting, we are not to eat meat with blood in it. And we talked about this for the last couple of months, this idea that came out of Acts 15, as our faith and became moving from following Jesus, which was largely a Jewish base group, to it goes out after the resurrection of the Holy Spirit, and Paul and the apostles are starting all of these churches, and they're entering new cultures, and they're trying to figure out what do we do. Acts 15, the early church says, well, we cannot expect anyone who's a follower of Jesus to eat blood with meat in it. And then we kind of wrestle with it, because that seems kind of an odd thing to carry, Kami talked, talked about this last week, that a lot of scholars, when they look at this, what makes the most sense to them is that beliefs like animism or idolatry believe that when you take the blood of an animal in, you assume its spirit. And we don't want anything of that nature where we're mixing religion, which is idolatry, which is worshiping something other than God and thinking there's a spirit other than the Holy Spirit living in our lives 
so we don't eat blood with meat in it. And this continues as Christianity becomes a worldwide religion. The last thing I want us to remember, and this is very practical, this is North Dakota wisdom. Next week, it's going to be part of the quiz, true or false, water always wins. Very practical. Remember that water always wins. If you are given the responsibility to take care of yourself or people and you're going to be near water, have a healthy fear of it. Put a life jacket on when you're going out. Make sure you know how to swim. If you're going to build something, don't build in a floodplain. Water always wins. Now, what should we do in the big picture sense? I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Next week, we're going to quiz you on this one. How do we deal with all of these Old Testament? We're going to look at some New Testament stories about mystery. Where do they take us? The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lays before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God's blessings on all of you. Put some thought into that as you take communion in a few moments. If you're wondering what's coming next, here's a couple of things that you're going to see. Next week, we're going to talk about Jacob and Laban's house and how he was protected from Esau's wrath for 20 years. Following week, we're going to talk about Joseph and Potiphar's house in prison. Then we're going to follow that by talking about Moses in the wilderness. And then we're going to talk about Passover. We've got a little farther laid out, but that's where we're going to be in the next four weeks. I'm looking forward to seeing you. The table talk question of the week. I want to encourage all of you to respect people who have gone before us. And I'm going to ask this week for you to make contact with your grandparents, if they're still alive or if you're a kid, and ask your grandparent this question. What's the longest you've ever had to wait for God to answer them? And next week, if no kid raises their hand, I'm probably going to call on Audrey and Dwayne or <laughs> Orlin and Sherry or maybe even my wife, Jana. I'm going to ask the grandparents to answer that one. So kids, if your grandparents aren't in town, even just go find a grandparent. Ask this question. We want to learn from the generation before us what's the longest they've ever had to wait. Let me close by reading from the Book of Common Prayer to bless you. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, who knowest our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking, have compassion, we beseech thee, upon our infirmities and those things which for our unworthiness we dare not, for our blindness we cannot ask, mercifully give us for the worthiness of thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Go with God. Hope to see you next week.